Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. What's the first brand when you were a very young boy that you remember making an impact on you? Probably Schwinn. Schwinn... um... Bicycle brand. Yeah, sure. But not because of the bicycle, the unicycle. So one of the things I don't try to tell is that I like to unicycle a lot. So we had a team of friends. We created a club and we were in parades. And I guess I was in the circus. (laughs) Now that I think about it. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it. And the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Omar Rodriguez Villa, an associate professor in the practice of marketing at Emory University's Coizueta Business School. Omar is twice published in the eminent Harvard Business Review, and his areas of research focus are mission critical for every CMO. They include the marketing capabilities for the future, how to be a more effective marketing leader, how marketing education needs to change, and how to evaluate progress in diversity, inclusion, and equality in marketing. This is why Omar is a must-have guest on the CMO podcast. Omar earned his PhD at Emory University after a career with McCann Group, one of the top marketing agencies in the world, and the Coca-Cola Company, where among other things, he led the Coke strategy for the Beijing Olympics. Omar came on our radar after a previous podcast guest, Norm DeGreb at CVS Health, suggested we invite Omar to share his original thinking. This is my conversation with Omar Rodriguez Villa. Welcome, Omar, to the CMO Podcast. You are the second academic that we have had as a guest. Scott Galloway was our first, and he talked, among other things, about the end of the brand era. So I want to know from you, up right up front, are we going to have a provocative headline from you coming out of this interview? Uh, that's not my goal. Provocation is not my goal, but I, I hope <laughs> that your audience uh, gets uh, some ideas here that, that do provoke new thinking. Yeah. So listen, I want to rewind a bit further and talk about your path to be an associate professor mm-hmm. at the Goizueta Business School at Emory University. It's an unusual path you've taken, <laughs> Omar, and I want to walk our listeners through that, and then we're going to talk about it. You were interested in advertising as a young guy. Mm-hmm. You went to Syracuse and studied advertising and communications as an undergrad. You then went to work for McCann, you know, a top marketing ad agency worldwide, then flipped to the client side with Coca-Cola in Latin America back for your MBA at Kellogg, which you've just talked about, brief stint in consulting, back to Coca-Cola for seven years, three in China, 
before leaving corporate life in 2008, which is interesting. It's the same year I left P&G to <laughs> do something more independent. Then PhD at Emory, faculty at Georgia Tech, back to Emory, where you, you become really a, a, an amazing thought leader and researcher in marketing, which we're going to unpack in a few minutes. So could you share with us what was the revelation that sprung you out of corporate life into academia back in 2008? Has it been everything you had hoped? Did you ever have second thoughts? So walk us through that. It's really interesting. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, you know, when you are, and you probably know this very well, Jim, better than me, when you work in large multinational firms, there's little consistency in your career, even though you're in the same company. And normally we don't, I mean, at the time I wasn't often thinking about changing careers in order to make progress in my career. I was always thinking, okay, how do I make progress within this company slash family that I feel like I belong to, which was Coke. So every two to three years, I was thinking, okay, what would my next job be? And frankly, even when I got one job, it was like a month or two, and I already had to start thinking, right? Because you have to start networking and connecting, you know, progress in multinational firms sometimes is a, is a less structured <laughs> yep, yep. process. And, and that continued until I got to China. And China was a transformational experience for me. It opened my eyes to so many things. It was, it was like moving to a whole different world, right? The, the world, the, the, just the, the marketplace was so different. The, the, just the, the rules of the game were so different. But at the same time, it, it also helped me realize that I was, as I progressed in my career, I was moving away, further away from the things that I was most interested in. Um, and I didn't realize what I was most interested in until I stopped doing it. Mm. So my passion was primarily for understanding how things worked and sharing that understanding with others. So when I worked in the global role as the head of IMC for Coke, I was charged with creating a model for what integrated marketing communications was going to be for the company. So I had to understand how that worked. And then I was charged to helping the business unit operationalize that model. So then I had to share with others, right? In, in a way that was really about them, not about me. It was about them and achieving better outcomes. I didn't see it that way at the time, but that was the, those were the ingredients in the, in the dish <laughs> that I was so thoroughly enjoying. And that was not what was required of me when I, you know, when I was in China. It was something else. It was, you know, it was, you know, it was managing a PNL and, you know, selling and moving fast and launching programs. There was no time to understand why things work or didn't work. It was just, they were all, there was only time to do. And it was something I also enjoyed and I, and I learned tremendously. But it also helped me realize this is not where I want to be. Um, this is not where I'm internally, personally thriving. Like I'm not enjoying this as much as I did uh, the other time. So I started searching for options. And, and I realized that, you know, within the, the company, there, there were not many options that had the trades that I was interested in. So I went to a, uh, to a program called the PhD Project. And the PhD Project is, a, is an institution that was uh, developed to promote more minorities into academia. It won't surprise you that our representation, both of black and brown and Hispanics in academia, is very small, particularly yeah. in business. Um, so I went there with a curious mind and saying, you know, could this be? And, and it just, it, I just, it would just blow my mind. When I, when I heard 
But I remember distinctively, distinctively talking to a faculty member. Uh, he was probably in his late 70s, but his, the sparkle in his eyes were still shining when he was telling me what he cared about, what he was doing, what he was excited about. And I'm like, you know what? This, kind of, this line of work is, is the work of a lifetime, right? Because you could be doing research and teaching you know, for a long time. Um, as long as you want, as long as you used to interest. So it, there was something in that and also the ingredients I just mentioned that really captured my, gave me the courage. I would say that's ultimately, that's it. Gave me the courage to try to cross that bridge because frankly, I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, I've never, there was nobody in my family that has been a, a professor. I didn't know. I, I went to talk to two professors at Kellogg when I was there. I, I had seeds of this curiosity back then and they didn't give me encouragement. <laughs> they told me this job is terrible. <laughs> the pressure is insane. Run away. And I'm like, really? Okay. But to your last question about regrets, I will say that the first six months when I left Coke and I was sitting in a classroom studying, you know, advanced statistics and these other things, and, you know, without taking notes, I was definitely looking backwards more than forwards. I was saying, oh, my God, you know, I had just had the birth of my second daughter. And, you know, I had a two and a one month old and I was studying a PhD for the first time. And I, I just left Coke and I was saying, you know what, what did I do the right thing? That feeling lasted for about six months. And I haven't looked back since. And as I started thinking more about what I was gaining than what I was losing. So how have you turned what some people told you was a horrible career into a good one for yourself? <laughs> how did you change that paradigm for yourself? I think it started by finding something that I, I was really passionate about. So I, and, and then because what academia gives you is the opportunity to explore your passion in an, in an unsupervised way. Yeah, yeah. So, but that comes with risks too, right? Like you end up not delivering, you suffer the consequences. But I, I found, actually, it wasn't Coke. It was a Coke. I was, um, we took uh, one of these offsite meetings. <laughs> you remember, remember those? Oh, yeah. We went to Inner Mongolia. And in this offsite meeting we, we, with the whole marketing team, we we're talking of teamwork and some planning work. And then one afternoon, we took a bus for about an hour and a half and we went to an orphanage. And it was called the Little Red House. And it's an orphanage that the Coca Cola company supported uh, in this part of the, of the country. And we spent the afternoon, I mean, we couldn't talk. With the kids, because I didn't speak the language, but we, I spoke soccer. I play football. They play football, mm -hmm. so we play yep. football all afternoon and we paint it. And I remember on the bus back thinking, you know, this is amazing. I've been in this country for a year and a half. I'm you know, part of the leadership team, and I had no idea the company had this investment in the community. What other environmental or community activities is the company involved in that we, the employees, don't know about, let alone our customers, our consumers? And what would happen if we did? And I started kind of that planted that seed of this intersection between societal benefits and growth, which I'm still pursuing today. And, and eventually my thesis was around that and kind of my first line of work was around that. And I think that, um, you know, I, I had some initial conceptions at that time that I, I now look back and I think they were wrong um, because initially I was thinking, well, maybe we need to let people know. And I was not being customer-centric in that way. It's like, why, why would they care, right? But still, that planted the seed of, of, of a passion that has really lasted. And there, you know, academia gives me the opportunity to explore in, in many different ways. 
We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. I want to get a bit more into your research focus. You just mentioned your thesis, but I want to I want to talk very specifically about your groundbreaking research on the modern marketing organization, which resulted in an article in the Harvard Business Review in late 2020. And the article is called, Is Your Marketing Organization Ready for What's Next? And it addresses marketing capabilities, which so many of our listeners are struggling with. Mm-hmm. So Omar, I want to ask you the big question up front. What is next? Mm-hmm. And then I want you to talk about a few takeaways from that incredible article, which I just read last night, getting ready for for this. And it really is a great, great piece of work. Great. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. I, I think next is defined by each company. Like we, and if, if you notice from the article, what we're really offering is a, is a framework that helps you find yourself in this current environment, which is so diverse, fragmented, and frankly, oftentimes confusing. And one of the things that we heard in the more than 125 interviews we did with CMOs and brand leaders was that it was hard to think clearly about what you needed to do. Um, you had Norm DeGreeves in your show a few weeks mm-hmm. ago, you know, in, in the CBS interview. CBS Health. Yeah. CBS, in, in one of the interviews with him, I, I remember distinctively he said, you know, part of the issue is that sometimes my capability agenda is shaped by the next email I'm going to get from the CEO or from a board member on, hey, I just saw this in Forbes or Fortune about AI application. What are we doing? And suddenly we just start more and more verticals and more and more experiments and more without clarity, uh, without a strategy, just action. And part of that is because us as a discipline, we thought, we, marketing has become just so many different things. We have lost sight of what it is and how to put it together. How do we make sense of all these options? So that's what the article, I think, helps with, gives that a framework. And then it goes a layer down, right? Like the framework is helpful, but then how do I use it? Then, then when you go from areas of value to actual capabilities that you need in order to deliver those values, then we have the possibilities of a choice, of, of a strategic choice. And, and that's what defines what's next, right? Like, you know, I may be really strong in two areas and I'm weak on another area, then, then that's my own next. Uh, and your next for your firm may be completely different and that's fine. But at least we have a map. Uh, and that's kind of where our intention. How do you get that clarity? You know, the leader has to decide for themselves what's next. And they're getting all these emails or seeing all these things that they, they're, afraid, they're afraid they're missing out on. So how, what's your advice to a leader anyway to, to find that clarity for their company, for their brand? Yeah. And, then, and that's just the first step, right? Then it's yeah. building the capabilities to, to win uh, with their customers and in their market. So I, I think that um, in, on that sense, in terms of getting the clarity, the process is a, is a big part of it. 
Um, and I would say part of the responsibility of the leader is to let the clarity emerge from the organization, not to think that the clarity is something that they have to come up with. Um, now, I, I do believe that the key role of the CMO is sense-making, right? You, you have to help your organization make sense of, of the operating environment, right? And simplify things, yes. Mm -hmm. But yep. how, how you get there? Uh, I, I think that oftentimes we, don't, we, we should listen to the crowd a lot more. So, for instance, in the process that we use in, in applying the, the model from the article, we work, we encourage leaders to involve their whole organization. We create this output called the Book of Voices, where you have comments from hundreds of associates at all levels. And this is important because there are people, there are truck drivers, there are salespeople that actually have better insights about some pieces of the puzzle, some pieces of the next, than, you know, the top leader might. Yeah. The, and today, with the advances in text analytics and, and all that we can do with data, it's a lot easier to listen to them in an efficient way, right? So I think that going broad enabled the whole organization to participate in providing input on what they see is needed. And then use smart analytics to collect that information and then bring it down to a place where, yes, there are a few people that then can make sense of it. You speak in the article about, in your framework, about getting very clear on the value of marketing mm -hmm. for the customer and also for the company. Mm -hmm. So I'd like you to reflect on all of these interviews you've done in the analysis and, and to make, I know it's tough to do this, it's a general statement, but what would you say is the biggest opportunity for many companies in showing the value of marketing for the customer and also the company? It's easier for me to think about the company side because the customer side is very heterogeneous based on the industry you're playing and all that, but I'll get to that in a minute. On the company side, I think the biggest opportunity is about the links. And I think the, the pain point that is a direct result of the fragmentation of marketing and the fact that, frankly, marketing, when I entered the discipline, marketing was a function. Today, marketing is really a coalition. Uh, it is work that is done by many functions. And as a result, a coalition, by definition, is an entity composed of individual groups or people with different interests that are finding a way of working together and achieving a common goal, but their interests are very different. They don't align. And how do you connect an organization to operate efficiently with agility and speed and all these attributes that we now need when not everybody's reporting into you, not everybody cares about the same things you care about? I mean, even the the, the war between performance and brand marketing, right? Like the tension, not war, but the tension, right? Which is very healthy tension. But um, So I think at the core of that is that we need a new way of thinking about organizational links. And that there's a part of the answer to that, which is cultural. And that sits squarely in the responsibility of the leader and the CMO and, and the behaviors that they promote. There's an answer to that, that's technology. Uh, how that enables collaboration in a smarter way. And then there are answers to that that has to do with actual people themselves, like the people you bring in and the skills they have, et cetera. And, and you know, that's one of the areas of value that we focus on. And frankly, you know, we almost had to push for that because as marketers, we tend to focus on the customer side 
and we almost feel like the internal side will take care of itself or, you know what, if we're a little chaotic, that's kind of the way it should be. <laughs> or we mm-hmm. take on, you know, yeah, this is a mess. I'm not clear about what my role sort is. You know, role sort confusion is kind of a syndrome of the moment. Uh, but we don't need to accept that reality, right? And that's one way we can bring, by bringing operational clarity to the firm and to our function, to activities, we actually enable agility. We enable speed to market, uh, which is, Clearly connected to our ability to compete. So that's on the on the customer side. Before you leave that, Omar, it's a really powerful thought. It's a coalition, not a function. You know, I I, I recently listened to Antonio Lucio's great mm. sp- speech when he left his career, and he talked about uh, technical leadership and personal leadership. And he speaks a lot about the opportunity to lead from the middle. Mm. Mm. So, in building a coalition and leading a function, what do you think is the most important? skill a CMO needs or where do they need to focus their time to do that well? Yeah, I, I think that I mean, two things come to mind. One, I spoke about sense making before. I think meaning making is, is another one. And I know this is something you, that's kind of very central to your work. Uh, the CMO needs to, his or her organization, I think to operate at its best, needs to be an organization that has a clear why. You go, well, why are we doing this? Thing? It, it, it cannot be just to make more money. It, it, we know that if we're in the private sector, we know that's core. It's not the only. And, and the CMO's job is almost to manage that tension and say, you know what? Yes, we need to make more money and more profit. But our unique role, because of we, we represent the customer. This is about human beings that we're serving, not just products we're selling. We are trying to, we need to articulate our purpose in this, in this company, in this enterprise through that lens and giving, giving the organization a more clarity on what that ultimate reason why is. So that, that's one. And sustaining that and, and bringing that to life, not just putting it in PowerPoint, right? I think the other one is what I call gravity. See, gravity is a skill and, and it's about leading from the middle in a way. And it's, it's about bringing people together, but it's but almost um, creating the conditions for people to want to come together. Not about you telling them, or, but thinking structurally, design, like how do I structure projects? How do I structure briefs? How do I structure incentives? So that this organization wants to come together. Not that I'm forcing them or that I'm requiring, like nudging almost, right? Uh, and that they do it in a way that, that is intelligent. Like I, I this thought of collaboration IQ, which I think is important because I, I see many times we oscillate from no collaboration to over collaboration. Meetings with 25 people sitting there, nobody's saying anything for two hours, right? That's over collaboration. And then meetings where there's only three people and the other, well, we need to be a lot more flexible on how we collaborate. But going back to the point of gravity, I think that speaks to creating initiatives and creating uh, programs and, in, and in allocating resources in ways that address the needs of more people in the organization. Um, so I think those two things, like mm-hmm. promoting gravity, building gravity, and giving meaning to me, I think, enables those links better. Now, the customer side of it, which is more complicated, but you, you, you make a you know, strong statement in your work and in this, in the article in HBR about the importance of being clear 
mm-hmm. on the value for the company, which we've been talking about, and the value of marketing for the customer. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is the biggest opportunity for many CMOs in that space? If we take a, a kind of a longitudinal lens to your question, and, and, and we think about creating customer value, a lot of our efforts as in marketing has been on, on creating value through better performance products, like over for a long time, right? And it's not Angie that, knows that very well. Yes, yes. You guys invented the jobs to be done idea or perfected it. Um, and that, that is not going away. That's there. The question is, is that sufficient, right? And I, and I think that particularly because of technology, um, performance has also been augmented now by convenience. And convenience, you know, performance, our view on performance was specific to the product, like how well does my detergent clean? Convenience goes beyond that, right? And it starts moving you into the experience, like how easy it is for me to buy, acquire, dispose, right? But technology, and if we think about a lot of the way technology has touched consumer products and services, uh, it has been through that lens, you know, it has made it easier for us to take a flight or find a hotel room or find a taxi cab or whatever. And now get information about the you know, condition of our teeth with smart uh, toothbrushes, et cetera. So it's been about increasingly about convenience. So I think of performance now being improved by convenience. I think what, what we haven't quite gotten to, some have, but we, but we haven't quite gotten to, is the third layer, which I call consequence. So consequences, all right, so you're able to sell that product and sell that package. What happens to that plastic bottle after you dispose? What actually is the cost of those ingredients once you consume them every day for three years? Is that good or bad for you? Uh, what happened with the carbon emissions necessary to deliver that product the next day because you couldn't go to the store, you couldn't wait three days? And see, there are many issues that I think, generally speaking, we would call sustainability related that are externalities of the work we do in business and in marketing that we have yet to incorporate in the way we think about value creation. We have incorporated them in the way we think about responsibility. And we talk about things like CSR and all those things. Um, But I think uh, that's not enough. I think, frankly, because there's value to be created, particularly in a growing segment of consumers that are beginning to look at those features as really choice decision criteria. And Jim, you know, the moment that happens, that falls squarely into our world of marketing, right? If if issues of environmental or social issues are decision criteria, then they're product benefits, then they're part of our job. And I think part of the problem is that issues of sustainability and the consequences of, of your product have been initially for the past maybe 10 years, 15 years, framed as not a growth conversation, but a reputation conversation, as a responsibility conversation. And I, I almost sat back and saying, with envy, frankly, at those that have framed the digital transformation, because digital transformation was framed through the lens of economies of scale, speed, competitiveness, growth. That's the language of resources. But the sustainability conversation was framed through green and being good. And that's not the language of, Resources, you know, that's not 
Those are not the topics that are discussed in the growth meetings. So we need to reframe that. We need to talk about market disruption. We need to talk about innovation and growth when it comes to consequence. And so I think that that's the next level. So what kind of companies are you admiring in that space now? I mean, I'm thinking about General Motors when you say that. I'm thinking about Unilever. I'm thinking about the old stalwarts like Patagonia. Anyone else that you think is standing out in the space? Yeah, I think that you mentioned two very important contrast there. So Patagonia is what I would call a, a native, right? They started this way. And that is great because they provide a model. But the problem is that the largest segment of the economy is not composed of those, those brands, of those companies. They, they, sure. Overall, they tend to be small. So it is the Unilevers of this world, the PNGs of the world that, that really can make a material difference. So seeing a legacy firm like Unilever transition is, is exciting. I think I, I follow companies like Chipotle. I, I admire what they have done and what they are beginning to do again. Mm -hmm. uh, they, yeah. they took a hiatus for you know, product performance reasons, right? So this is not a one versus the other. You know, they dropped the ball on performance. They had to go back to the basics. Um, but if you go back to how they became one of the fastest growing um, restaurants in the U.S. Uh, up until 2014, Part of it was competing on the basis of sustainable agriculture. And when they talked about the emission of, um, of better food at that time, um, it, it could be perceived as an issue of responsive so CSR, but I saw it as a, uh, as a market disruption. Because the question is, what could their competitors do if they begin to grow on the basis of their ability to deliver their products via sustainable agriculture supply chain. See, Moe's and Taco Bell, they couldn't match that. And what do we call a new player that comes into a market and displaces the incumbent in a way that the incumbent cannot respond, at least in the short term? That's disruption. So to me, what Chipotle did was market disruption using sustainability. We need more like that, right? Um, and clearly demonstrated a, a tremendous ability to define growth in the market as a result of it. And they have their, their, as you said, they're newly resurgent. They have a great leadership team. They got back to that core idea. They build that into their value proposition. It's a great example. Yeah, and the Super Bowl ad, I was celebrating it yeah. because I was like, all right, they're back. They, they, took, they took five years, but now they're like stable enough. They're going to you know, supercharge that, that ambition. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Omar, I know you would never do this, but if you somehow did get thrown into a big CMO job in the next month, what would be your 100-day plan? See, I, I remember when I, when I went to China, I asked one of the people I admire the most at Coke, his name was David Brooks, not, not the New York Times uh, um, comment uh, writer, but uh, different, same name. And he he was a he became the division president of the China business later, and he gave me great piece of advice, which was you know Omar, you're you're coming to a company that has the same name, 
but you're not coming to work in the same business. Right? This is the Coca-Cola company in China is very different to the Coca-Cola company in other places around the world. So you need to update your mental model about how growth happens, how value is created. Spend your first, he didn't say 100 days, but kind of that was kind of the, what he inferred, updating that model and update it in a holistic way. Don't look at it only through your role as a, you know, director of marketing, whatever. Look at it through the system as a whole. So meet with the bottlers, meet with the distributors, meet with the customers, meet with consumers, and try to get, you know, the more complete your map is of how growth happens, the better you will be able to optimize the piece of that engine that you influence, right? And it is system thinking applied to a very practical scenario. And I think that reflecting back on your question, that would be my focus on the first 100 days is creating my own mental model of how growth happens in the, in the firm that I will be leading. And then what specific job would the marketing team that I would be leading would need to do in order to accelerate that growth or to enable that growth, right? And that job of marketing needs to be defined specifically to the moment. I cannot bring into that, into a CMO role, a predetermined understanding of what marketing is. I need to bring the tools. I know marketing can be this. And that to me is the framework in that article you mentioned. It could be this. But in this context, in this firm, at this moment, it needs to be that. Mm-hmm. And fearing that distinction, I think, is, would be key. Um, and the answer lies in the mental model. Okay, this, this is exactly what, what is needed for the moment. And it may change two years after. You know, it's interesting. I ask a lot of CMOs on this podcast who are relatively new in their roles how they got started. What was their onboarding? How did they get off to a, a great start? And, you know, you might expect to hear quick wins and stuff like that. But the, the, the very successful ones talk about learning, listening, meeting everybody in the ecosystem, understanding how they see the business, how they see the customer, how they see the company, how they see the culture. Mm-hmm. And then once you've had this massive amount of listening, processing, looking for red threads, mm-hmm. then you define your role. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and you, frankly, uh, you don't even look at the job description, right? You know, job descriptions are a distraction. <laughs> Roles are, are, are really about human relations, and they are informal, um, and they are dynamic. And, and as a result, as long as you have clarity of what is it that we are here to do that's unique to our, you know, our, our needs in the company, then you kind of shape your role along the way. There are some exceptions to that, but generally speaking. I see. Yeah. You do a lot of research also in marketing leadership skills and behaviors, which really we're talking about now. What, what do most CMOs get wrong and what do most of them get right from your experience? You've just been through a lot of research with senior marketing people over the last year or two. You know, wrong and right are strong binaries. I, I like to think slightly differently, but, I, but let me get to your question this way. I think there are a few traps that sometimes we can fall into, and I myself have fallen into, in 
having a leadership role in marketing and as a result, prioritizing marketing and letting myself see the world through the lens of marketing. And and marketing is an integrated, it's it's a team sport. Like growth is a team sport. So really uh, what's important is never lose sight of the team, even though there are a few players that play on your side and a few others on the other. You're really in the team. That, That includes the digital folks, the legal folks. So therefore, you should pay as much importance to figuring out how to, what areas to lead as to pay as you pay attention to figuring out what areas do you need to support better. What is the work of other functions that don't report to you, but that could be improved or enabled by a few things that your team could do better, right? Uh, Oftentimes, we as marketers provide the requirements for new products to be developed and for new websites to be improved and all that, even though customer experience oftentimes doesn't sit with us, we can play a a bit. So having that that lens of uh, kind of, you could, I guess you could call it servant leadership. Some people call it that. Um, Thinking about the needs of others and positioning your function as an enabler of the success of others, not only your own, goes a long way in creating a marketing organization that enables those links and that enables the whole enterprise to, to work better. The contrary to that is a perception of almost like a zero-sum game between marketing and others, thinking of marketing as something that's a goal in itself, and then prioritizing kind of your marketing agenda, believing that maybe growing the brand is the most important thing and these other things, they don't get it. And No, 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 it's not they don't get it. They have different interests. They have different. So mm-hmm. I would say that that's, that's a trap that could be avoidable. There's research from Deloitte and others about the gap in confidence that many CMOs have and also a gap in self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And you talked earlier in this podcast about your self-awareness and really redirecting your career because you were in touch with you know, your personal purpose, what your strengths are when, you're, when you are operating at your best and, you've, and you flipped your career. Why? Why? In your estimation, Omar, do we have a confidence and a self-awareness issue with many CMOs? You know, I, I would say this, Jim, in, in, at least in the interviews I, I did from, from my sample, I did not come away from those experiences feeling there was a confidence gap. I did come away feeling there was confusion about what to do and that there was tremendous pressure to demonstrate value. I do think that that second part oftentimes translates into the issues of confidence, particularly because it goes back to what is marketing in different firms, right? But if, the, if you're operating in a firm where the digital activities or the e-commerce activities are not reporting to you, it's not the way that marketing is defined, it's somewhere else, those activities are increasingly measured to the precision of a manufacturing plant, right? Mm-hmm. You could apply Six Sigma to it. <laughs> in that environment, you're also competing for resources. And now if marketing in your firm is defined as demand creation activities that are not those, then you're really operating in a very different environment with a much reduced ability to measure return on investments and justify. And I think that's at the core of what maybe through the Deloitte work could be um, 
surfacing some issues of, of confidence, which is really our inability to define value, to, to explain value, because we can't measure. But I think really the problem is defining marketing in a narrow term. Um, we got to go back to understanding marketing is about customer-driven growth. So anything, any activities related to that is part of that discipline. And the, there, are, there are different combinations of activities that are necessary, and, but they're all part of the, the same end, end, you know, end goal. That's my take. Now, in terms of the confusion, yes, that, that is there. I think it's, I think it's momentary, though. I think it's, it's a phase as we are all trying to figure out how to leverage this new environment. Hey, one, the last area of your research and interest that I want to probe before going to, jumping into the lightning round mm -hmm. is this area of uh, DE&I, diversity, mm -hmm. equality, and inclusion. And from what I understand, you're working on developing standards for evaluating progress in this area. Uh, this has obviously gotten a spotlight in the last year for all sorts of societal reasons. Companies, I think, have more resolution than I have ever seen mm -hmm. in making a difference here. Uh, I, I think it's going to stick. But again, there's lots of people wandering, trying things, a bit confused, uh, a bit unsure mm -hmm. of their direction uncomfortable with certain mm -hmm. conversations. Mm -hmm. So what are you learning, Omar, that could help our listeners out there who are genuinely trying to make a difference in the diversity, equality, and inclusion in their mm -hmm. company and in the marketing function? Yeah, I think um, I'm glad you brought that up. Yes, yeah, so, uh, this is a project that started last, last summer. Um, and it's building on work we have done in the past on other social issues, but we're now centering on, on issues of race. And really the, the goal is to define what is an anti-racist brand? What is an anti-racist brand? Using the term anti-racist, uh, really the same way that Ibram Kendi uses it in mm -hmm. his book of how to become an anti-racist, right? Um, I think that, and in fact, that, that book is one of those books that you know changes lives and it certainly had that impact on me. Um, but it made me realize the difference between just standing still uh, and being anti-something. Uh, and when you then start exploring what is an anti-racist brand, uh, we're basically looking at three areas where a brand, through their commitments or through their actions, can actually promote practices that, that advances equality in society. The, the first one, and the one you alluded to and has received most of the attention is the internal practices. So those are employee, not only in terms of recruitment, but primarily development, right? Representation at all, across all levels, right? And there's a lot of changes happening there, structural changes, creation of new positions, new accountabilities, new reporting, all of it good. Um, a lot more needed, yes, but well, this is great progress. Second area is community relations. So when brands donate money to nonprofits or when the managers sit on nonprofit boards, um, how are they helping? You know, sometimes companies get involved with nonprofits, frankly, sometimes to pursue their own interests. And they get on the way of the mission of the nonprofits. So there are practices there that could actually enable your brand and your involvement with the community to be even more effective. The last one which is the one that, I'm, that my team or me and my team are focusing more first, is on the marketplace. 
So on the customer side. So is it possible that, for instance, through the way you're segmenting the market, segmentation is leading to segregation, that you are actually not looking at needs or are overseeing the needs of underrepresented minorities in ways that ends up resulting in product of people that actually have their needs unmet or met in very poor ways when they don't need to. And I'll give you an example of this. And it's a category that you're very familiar with. Shaving for men. Why was Bevel, why would Bevel needed to be, to come out in, you know, what, 2015, 2014? Right. Why wasn't Bevel created much earlier by the Gillette company? And, and then eventually, you know, for years, men with curls and curly hair had to use depilatory creams and, and other mm. solutions, right? And then Tristan Walker comes along and said, you know what? There's an unmet need in this market. Yeah. And there's an opportunity. So, so we are focusing... eventually bought that brand. Yes, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. Um, so, I'm, I'm, so we're focusing on that part. Well, what is it about... The, the marketplace practices through your branding, your communication, your pricing, your distribution, your product design that could be uh, either promoting or actually contributing to um, uh, opportunities for greater equality. What will happen with this research, Omar? When will we expect to see something yeah. that we can all look at more thoroughly? So we have two intentions. One is an academic goal um, that's led by one of my co-authors, Dion Nickerson. And she's uh, really focused on, she's at the University of Indiana, and she's really focused on this space. Um, she, she's taking the lead on that. And the, the, we have another goal, which is to turn the research into a tool. So I, I think if we focus on practices, right, not, not promises, mm -hmm. then if we can turn the research into practices that then enable managers and leaders to say, okay, which of these practices do I have? Which ones I don't have? You see in their gym almost the genesis of a maturity model, right? Okay, so yeah. how, how, how developed am I on this? By area of action, internal, community, and marketplace. Mm -hmm. Put all those three together, I have a sense of, if I really want to make progress on, on this space, this gives me a sense of where I am today and where I could go next. And why we centered on this is because we, we spoke with a lot of managers last summer as these issues became very salient. And... And we realized there was a lot of good, well-intentioned, good intentions. People were not clear about what, what they could do other than just posting social media that, that they care, right? Like, what else can I do? What else should I change? And it, that requires more visibility to the systems and to the practices that many other people have taken. Omar, this is a fabulous discussion, but I want to move into the lightning round. You worked on Coke strategy for the Beijing Olympics, which we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. What was the craziest day in that experience? When we were a year out to the Olympics, it, it, let me stand back a little bit. The Olympics were, a big part of it was a celebration of China's progress. It was the way a lot of the Chinese people spoke about it. It was almost like a coming out party. Like, listen, we're, we're opening up and we're demonstrating to the world that how far we've come and how much we have to offer. Well, they've always had a lot to offer as a society, but uh, more recently through their economic development. And the, we wanted to be part of that celebration. And one of our uh, strategies was to 
embark on a it sort of almost fuse marketing and art and partner with a lot of artists in, in China to find different expressions of what that celebration looked like, which resulted in, in a billboard campaign that had more than 100 executions. And they were all different following the same framework, all highlighting different aspects. And I remember when that hit the streets, it was so, it was like nothing I have seen. And I remember just jumping in a cab and being on the cab for by an hour and a half, just driving around Shanghai, just taking in what, you know, the impact. I, it, was, it was like an art exhibit in the streets, free to the public. At least that's how we conceived of it. And it was joyful and it was, um, it was very celebratory and it was something that I think a lot of us were proud of. Um, and it was so different that, I don't know, I found it to be quite, quite special. Quite special. Very on brand for Coke. Yes, it was really pretty much in line with what we were trying to use the Olympics for. And we ended up creating a book with all the, all the ex expressions and all that. But yeah. What's the most interesting question a student has asked you? It's not as interesting to me, but I understand why it's interesting to them. A lot of them don't understand why I'm in academia. So they ask, why did you change? Mm -hmm. um, and maybe why did you change so young? Because I think there's a lot of us in industry, because I've spoken with enough people that say, you know what, I would love to teach. I would love to give back. And, you know, a lot of us. But we almost see it as something we will do later. Yeah. And, and that's a problem, Jim, because, you know, where are our next generation of leaders are going to come from if we don't have motivated people in all parts of their journey, right? Um, and I'm not saying that the current academics are not, they are. Anyways, I find that, that the fact that they, they find my change so puzzling, I find it interesting from that perspective. And, and as I said earlier, it's a, it's a change I have no regrets over. Have you ever given a lecture that's really bombed? Oh, yes. <laughs> very, very many. Yes. Uh, and normally when, when I give lectures that, I, that bomb, it's, it's either one or two things. It's a lecture about something that I don't feel I know well. Mm -hmm. Or second, it's a lecture about something that I don't really, I'm not passionate about. And the good thing is that those two things I have some control over. So I try not to give lectures about things I don't care. Yeah. And yeah. I try to... It's good advice yeah. for everything. Yes, because your passion, you know, shows up. It shows up the moment you start talking. Uh, and it comes... If you, are, if you choose to speak on something you're passionate about, you're just going to be naturally better. Yeah. What are you reading now or watching or listening to that is... Helpful for you, useful, entertaining, educational. Yeah, um, reading now. So I we spoke about how to be anti-racist. That I, I finished that over the December, November period. This book, it's it's not new. Winners take all. Um, I found it eye-opening, um, and it's a it's a criticism of the CSR kind of idea, right? But it's probably, it's one of the best 
argued criticism from the standpoint that it really explains why is it that the current approach where the, you know, the large firms or the high-tech firms are trying to solve society's problems their way, why is that actually preventing progress? And why is the culture that's promoting thought leadership at the same time reducing the role of critics? And why critics are so essential, right? And that's why, you know, I love people like, well, Ibram Kendi being one, but uh, Mario Nestle, for instance. When I was a cook, Mario Nestle was a nutritionist at NYU and a strong critic of the big food industry, okay? But I read all her work. I, I thought that she was a necessary tension if we wanted to be a better company and if I wanted to be a better marketer because she spoke to the consequences in a way that we were not exposed to. Um, and I think that that's the role of the critics. And, and, I, and that, that's what this book by Anand uh, Jirin Daradas, I think is his last name, it does so well. Um, and it, it honestly, it, it kind of challenged my own ways of thinking and helped me think about the role of companies in this issue of sustainability in a, in a new light. So I, I found it quite useful. Okay, last word to you, Omar. Anything for me before we sign off? Well, I, you know, all I can say is first, thank you for the opportunity uh, to, to be on your show and to speak to you. Uh, you're an inspiration to many of us in the discipline. We, we've followed you since we were kids and we've seen a lot of your work um, both at PNG and admired it at PNG and then even more after you left. I think the path you are setting for yourself is leaving a trail of clarity for many other people on what they can do after they leave, you know, a big job and how to return, you know, turn their careers into something that, that continues to be of great impact. So thank you for what you're doing and, and, you know, keep, keep opening the doors for, for other, maybe that shed the light on issues that we're not paying attention to. I'm glad you asked me about the, the NI, all the things that, that we're, we're overlooking. That would be great. Thank you, Omar. That's a, that's a great inspiration. This has been a very thoughtful conversation and beyond that, extremely helpful for our listeners, I am sure. And uh, thank you for sharing your experience and your personality and your, your personal purpose. It's been really wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity. Have a great day. That was my conversation with Omar. Here are the biggest three takeaways for you to think about applying in your daily life and in your business. First one, he had a simple definition of marketing. Marketing is customer-driven growth. The lesson, the takeaway is, do you know how growth happens in your company, in your ecosystem? You must, must understand that before you can put together strategies to win in the marketplace. Second takeaway, marketing is a coalition, not a function. That's a big thought. The takeaway from that is, are you a coalition builder versus just a functional leader. And to be a coalition builder, you're working with cross-functional peers, outside agencies. It's a different skill set. Every great marketing leader is a coalition builder. Third takeaway, we are all working DE&I. Omar had fabulous thoughts about, is your DE&I diversity, equality, and inclusion? Does it cover three important areas? Of course, your internal practices, Second, what you're doing in the community. And third, is it affecting your marketplace approaches? When you segment your brand, are you segmenting to be racist or exclusive versus inclusive? 
So very, very original thinking, I think, on what we can all do to improve our strategies in DEI. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.